Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey, good evening, guys. We'll go ahead and uh, jump into this tonight. Uh, again, for everyone listening to the podcast, I plead my innocence. I have Kenny here. I have Kenny here to vouch for me. Did I press the record button? I did. I don't know why it's not working. We're going to give it a shot again tonight. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's true. It does, it does require batteries. So if you're listening to the podcast, we now have two weeks that have not really worked out. And Yes, I will come by and personally teach you life Elijah. But I sincerely apologize. I don't know what's going on. Uh, yeah, it just it hasn't worked twice now. So hopefully this time uh, you guys listen to the podcast at work. So typically we've started off with questions that have been a little bit light, have a little bit open. And I told you I'd never give you a question meant to embarrass you. Uh, and so, again, I'm never going to ask you a question that's meant to put you in an unhealthy place of like vulnerability. But I'm going to ask a question that's a little bit different tonight. It's a whole different angle because I feel like that tonight's conversation merits something a little bit different. Um, question for you. Uh, you can answer one of two questions if you're willing to. All right. Number one, uh, I'm thinking of my really, really, really good friend, Joel Brown, who lives in Alaska. And there's no doubt for him uh, that he deals with and he would t- he was sitting here. He give a whole conversation about uh, even just seasonal depression. And what happens to him when they start losing light in Alaska and how much it messes with his head. Uh, I mean, it, and I don't mean just like it it puts him a little bit of funk. I mean, it really is hard for him when it's just hours and on ends of just over over, you know, just clouds, dreariness, you know, and it's, it's, it's dusk by, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. It's not really getting light, you know, until, you know, 10 a.m. or so, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, there's just long days. Uh, but I'm curious for you, is it a seasonal thing or maybe it's a time of year thing when you reflect back, oh man, this time of year is hard. Like I struggle every year. It might be a memory. It might be something. And again, I'm not going to ask you to go to a place of vulnerability that you're unhealthy. You, you, feel, you feel uncomfortable talking about. But is there a season in your life that you know it's coming? And it's for you, you know it's going to come. It's going to hit. And, uh, and, and it might be a time of year when you remember something difficult that happened or it might be a season like it is for Joel. But let's talk about like, do you understand the rhythms of your life and the different seasons that you hit? And you know that, man, when I hit this one, when I hit this one, I know what's coming. And, and it happens to me about every year. Okay, go ahead. Talk about that. I know that's not quite as light as the things we've done in the past, but I think in light of tonight's conversation about Elijah, it's important. Okay, have that conversation. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump back in. And uh, man, I know that for, for some of us, those can be vulnerable conversations. I want to wrap up just quickly, quickly. We can't spend much time because uh, as much as I wanted to, like I didn't finish last week and I wanted to camp out in it. My goodness, I thought we've got ahead of us this week. And I'm like, if I do spend too much time in last week, then we won't get through this one. Uh, but man, we, we ended... You know, this whole story of Elijah facing these prophets of Baal, 850 of them, man. Fire comes down. You know the story. You were here, uh, you know, and and all of a sudden, you know, it consumes the sacrifice. Elijah takes these guys down, you know, to this Kishon River Valley. uh, And, you know, all of a sudden the the slaughter takes place. And actually, it's the same river valley 
that will be that where uh, Megiddo is, is at. Uh, it's a little further up, uh, you know, up, up in the land. And the interesting thing is there's going to be another great battle that takes there. And if you guys know Megiddo, or it's also called in the book of Revelation, Armageddon. And so you think about this moment where this reckoning comes about in this large, massive valley, that this is, it's a place of prominence. And, and man, there's a reckoning taking place. And we look at this thinking, man, how can Elijah just kill these 850 guys? You know, if we, you know, we're all paying attention right now to what the, what's going on, you know, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the way this, you know, this journalist has just been slaughtered. And man, you're watching this play out on the news and keep in mind, Keep in mind, what's just happened here is an absolute abomination. There's no prisons to put these guys in. There's no detention centers. There's nothing like that. And these guys are actually in the process of completely disrupting the plan of God. And they brought paganism where there's been, you know, we even read earlier, we were talking about what the stuff that Jezebel is doing. There's human sacrifice taking place. I mean, there's what these guys have been doing is so utterly vile, so horrific uh, that the only way that Elijah can stop this is he has to eliminate them. They've got to be gone. And so he takes these guys down and wipes them out and, and just says, you're out. This is it. Um, and then you see this, this gracious provision taking place. We pick up in verse 40. We're going we're gonna to go through the end up 18 just real quick. I can't live here too long. And then we'll jump into tonight's text. Uh, chapter 18, we'll go to verse 41. Uh, and then Elijah said to Ahab, and I love this fact, it's been like these eight different commands he just keeps telling Ahab what to do. Uh, and if you notice, there's a missing party here. Jezebel is nowhere to be found so far in this story. But he says to Ahab, who's shown up with his entourage, he says, go eat and drink for the sound of a heavy rain. And that, that fascinates me because they're up in a barren area for the most part. <clears throat> and it's just interesting. He talks about the sound of a heavy rain. I, I don't know if he's hearing thunder I don't know what, he, what God is sending. Some of the stuff, you know, it, the timing of it is, is intriguing to me. But it's the sound of heavy rain. And it goes on. It says, uh, uh, where we, we lost this. Uh, it says, so Ahab, uh, he said, okay, so Ahab, go eat and drink. He says, basically celebrate for there's a sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of the mountain, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. If there's a sound of heavy rain, why is Elijah retreating to prayer? I mean, he is taking just a posture right now of absolute humility. He is down on the ground with his face buried between his knees, kneeling before a mighty God. It goes on, he says, and he tells his servant, he says, go look to the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and he looked. There's nothing there, he said. Now, wait a second. Ahab had to hear it. It's the sound of heavy rain, but there's nothing there. He can just hear it. Like he's looking clear out over to the sea. And this actually is coming in from a little different angle than it would have come in that area. So he tends to look at the sea. says, there's nothing there, he said. Pooh. He said, uh, seven times Elijah said, go look. Can you imagine right now the frustration, Elijah? From the very beginning, he says, rain won't come until I give the word. He just told the king, go back and eat, for there's a sound of a heavy rain. And seven times he's prayed to God. Seven times. Actually, eight times total, because it says seven times. I guess that maybe he's included the first one. Seven times he says, go back. It's crazy. I mean, let's go back. Let's contrast this. Tell me the biggest difference between the prayer he prays when he's having the showdown. He and Jehovah Sobaoth, the, 
the God of the armies are having the showdown at the altar of Baal. How many times does he pray that time? How many times? Once. How long is that prayer? We timed it. Yeah, it's less than it's 30 seconds. What in the world, man? What is God doing? Why? I mean, all of a sudden, God answers the very first time. Boom, things happen. And now all of a sudden, here he is asking over and over and over and nothing. Every time, it's nothing. Is that not true of our lives as well at times? Man, sometimes we feel like God just answers our prayer. We know exactly. He causes this to happen. He causes that to happen. We're so overwhelmed. And then you've ever felt this place where you mean, I prayed about this. Like, God, I keep asking. Like, I keep praying. I keep praying. I keep praying. Like, God, are you going to answer this prayer? And I know someone's going to say, well, no answer is an answer. But in Elijah's case, that's not, that's not reality. I mean, he just gave the king the word because he felt like God showed him what was going to happen. And now nothing, man. I think there's a place for this attitude of persistent prayer. You find it in, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 10, where Jesus says, man, keep asking. Pay, pray persistently. You know, Paul talks about this. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where he talks about pray, you know, pray constantly, pray consistently. I don't think there's anything wrong in having this attitude and this approach to prayer where you just keep coming before the throne of God in a spirit of submission over and over and asking and begging God for an answer. I think that's, that's absolutely appropriate based on what Jesus says. You just don't stop praying for that family member. You just don't stop praying for that coworker. You just don't stop praying for that friend. You just don't stop praying about the situation. Sometimes you just got to take it before God over and over. And what is he praying for? You got to keep in mind, man. I know it sounds like he's praying for rain, but please see past clouds and storms and water. Elijah's praying for so much more. He's praying that through the rain, a nation will be restored. He's praying for God's provision. So we're going to say, man, just the truth of the matter is that sometimes, here's the issue, God answers immediately. And sometimes he doesn't. That's, that's great theology. That's great teaching. But that's the truth of the matter. Sometimes he answers right then and there. And sometimes he doesn't. He goes on to this text. And he says, um, he says, The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And man, in that moment, So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. I love that man. I love that. I love what Elijah's doing right now. He's saying, Ahab, you better get home, man, because the mud is going to be thick. You know, he's thinking, Ahab, you've got to hitch up your chariot. He's got like 2,000 of them, you know. Hitch up your chariots and go, man, because this is going to be a mud fest. You've not had rain in three and a half years, and you can imagine how soupy and messy and nasty the roads are going to get, how bad the trails are going to get. He's like, you better get out of here, Ahab. And he goes on, Ahab does it. So Elijah said, he says, hitch up your chariot. Uh, and, you know, go down before the rain hops. Meanwhile, the, sc- the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Can you, like, my mind just wonders, like, is that storm, like, I've been in rainstorms that have absolutely terrified me. I remember one in particular. If I could go back and repeat this, I would not have done this. Uh, but I was hunting with my son one night and he had shot a deer and we were looking all over for it. I mean, couldn't find this deer. And we're, we're finally, it's dark. We, I got headlamps on. I'm trying to follow this, you know, the, it's a blood trail. And I'm trying to follow it through the woods. And I can hear the storm rolling in, but I'm so deep in the woods, I can't really get out and see what's coming. You know, it's just like I'm, I'm down on the river bottom 
trees all around me. I'm trying to get a feel for it. And man, I could just feel. You could feel the wind. Like all of a sudden, you know, that moment where the temperature just changes and it just drops like 15, 20 degrees and the wind is just howling. And I finally looked at Leva. I was like, we got to go. Well, from our house, we can paddle upstream to our hunting spot. And so we take in a canoe up because we want to come up real quiet. Didn't want to walk through the woods. Didn't want him to hear us. So we take this canoe up and we, you know, we get up there. We park the canoe. He shoots his deer. We can't find it. Finally, I was like, but we got to go. We'll, we'll look tomorrow. And he's like, but dad, I was like, I know, son, you know, the, the rain's going to wash it all away. We, we can't stay out here. We got lightning coming in. This is dangerous now. We got to get out of here. You know, we have a rain gear with us, anything like that, because it had been a beautiful day. We went out. So we went, we got in the boat, and all of a sudden, man, I remember we were trying to paddle back. Ah, the wind. I don't know how fast it was blowing, but it was blowing so hard, coming right up that river. And I mean, just spinning the, the canoe. We're trying to fight and hold on. The wind's just going crazy. The trees are just swaying and rocking, man. They're going back and forth, lightning, thunder. And all of a sudden, Levi turns around and goes, Dad, I'm scared. And I had this really beautiful dad moment. I said, shut up. I don't have time for you to be scared. Put your paddle in the water and row now. I said, we're in trouble. You don't have time to be afraid. We got to get out of here. And I'm going to yell at my son. It's terrible parenting. Terrible. But honestly, at the heart level, it's like, bro, I'm serious. We don't have time for you to be afraid. This is not, you don't get that option right now. Like we are in deep, deep trouble right now. Like go, go. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you've just caught yourself in a storm. I don't know what this was like for Ahab. You know, part of it, I think it's probably amazing. If you've not seen rain in three and a half years, the horses are going crazy. You know, the other soldiers are going crazy. Everyone's going nuts. People are jumping around. They're dancing. They're enjoying it. I would imagine that 17-mile trip that Ahab's got all the way back to his summer palace where he's living, that 17-mile trip had to be one of the most amazing trips. I mean, I, I would imagine it's probably a storm. My guess is when God sent the thunder, he sent it. I mean, it was probably a rain. It was probably one that filled up dry ponds, dry lakes, filled up dry wells. I mean, it was probably one of those ones that it's probably a storm. You know, that storm we just talk about forever, how bad it was when it came through. You know, it's, it's interesting. The older I get, I now understand how my grandpa and my parents can say, remember that storm we got back in 19? I'm like, yeah, I'm not that guy now. I remember those storms. I want, that's probably one of the ones that all of Israel still talks about, the storm of whatever it was. It was crazy. And he rides 17 miles in his chariot. It goes on. He says, Elijah said, go tell Ahab. He hits it up. Meanwhile, the sky, sky was black. Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, there's a couple of ways. This is really a fascinating thing. And I don't have time to get into it tonight. Oh, that's really, really cool. There's some nuances in there that I think are really interesting. All right, let's unpack just a few of them. Um, it says, the power of the Lord came on Elijah. I, I think it came on him physically in this moment. And like, my opinion is he probably like just the endurance, just the fortitude after everything he's been through to just say, I'm running 17 miles through a horrific storm. Now, two things could have happened here. One is he could have taken, there's a route he could have taken that took him up over the mountains and he could have tried to like, how did he beat the horses and chariots? Well, one, they could have been dealing with mud and everything else as a horse and chariots are trying to get through. That could have been part of it. Or Elijah could have taken this high road. But I got this subtle suspicion right now that Elijah is actually running right in front of Ahab, like literally in front of his chariot. Why? Why would Elijah have run, literally been out in front of Ahab's chariot? Anybody know? 
What would be your guess? Symbolically, what would be happening right then? Prophets of Baal are killed, the rains return, and the prophets running in front of the king. What's the, what's the symbolism there? Okay, God is greater than your kingdom. All right. Yeah, it's great. That is, headed down that line is a good way to look at it. So there's three main offices that happen in Israel. Prophet, priest, and king. And I think what's happening right now is Elijah is so hopeful for restored kingdom that he's actually looking and honoring King Ahab. I think he thinks that Ahab is going to repent. Ahab is going to be restored as a king. I think he's looking at it saying, man, we're restoring Israel. And he's looking at Ahab, Jezebel. He probably thinks he's going to kill Jezebel when they get back. I don't know. But I think he leads out in front of Ahab, symbolically telling all of Israel that the prophet and the king are together. We're headed together. We're going back as a nation. And he's leading. And I think he rolls into town ahead of Ahab, almost as like a herald, as a champion. You see it played a few different times in Scripture. This stuff shows up. And in fact, in, in another negative sense, it shows up with Absalom. Remember the story of Absalom and David in the city, where Absalom all of a sudden, you know, he had an entourage that preceded him. To precede the king, to be out in front of the chariot, was a thing of honor. And I, I have the suspicion that that's actually what's playing out right now. I think it has a lot more to do with honor than it is like him taking some back road, anything like that. So a few things, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Number one, what I love about Elijah is that you, when he realizes that he's in God's will, he knows that he is invincible. He knows he's invincible. Can we ever reach that point when we know we're in the will of God that we're literally afraid of nothing. What can man do to you? I love what Hebrews says. We are not of those who shrink back and destroyed. Paul tells First Timothy, we are not given a, uh, Timothy, we are not given a, a spirit of timidity, one of power, love, and a sound mind. Throughout scriptures, one of the, one of the commands is said most often in scripture is be strong and courageous. Stated over and over and over in scripture. Be strong and courageous. Throughout the New Testament, be bold. And one thing, I think sometimes we get, or I can get this sheepish attitude where, man, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But how often does God give that command? Be strong and courageous. Go forth. Move out. Be bold. Over and over. You know, don't be of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Don't have a spirit of timidity. Want a power, love, and a sound mind. I wish we could live more like that. But you know what? It's never, ever. It was never 850 against one. It wasn't. It wasn't 850, 850 to 1. It was 850 to 1 plus God. That changes the whole game, man. 850 to 1 plus God. So no matter what obstacles stand in our way, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? Moving on, a few, few more things. I think divided allegiance from chapter 18, divided allegiance is as wrong as open idolatry. Just as wrong. For us to have a divided kingdom in our own heart where we try to worship God yet play this role where we still bow down to culture. You know, divided allegiance is just as bad as outright open idolatry. And I think our most effective tool is faith, man. What, what Elijah does with just faith. You know, that he believes and hopes in things that, that he doesn't even see. He knows that he, he worships a God who can do this. And he puts his trust in him. 
And then I think we, we'll end with this. Never, ever underestimate the power of a man or a woman wholly committed to God. Whew. Never, ever underestimate the power of a man or a woman wholly committed to God. And when you find people like that, stand next to them. Be near them. A man or woman wholly committed to God is a powerful thing. All right. There's lots of the stuff we could get into. We need to stop. So let's shift gears to tonight. So I think it's important that we end verse 46, what it says. Where is it? He says, the power of the Lord came on Elijah. There is about to be a radical shift between the last verse of 18 and the first few verses of chapter 19. I mean, it, it feels like if we were writing the story and none of us were going to read ahead, we, I don't think we would write chapter 19. But I'm so glad it's in here. Chapter 19 is full of depression. Chapter 19 is full of discouragement and despair. Chapter 19 is full of absolute failure. And one thing I love, I love this about Scripture. God doesn't hide the messy stories. We do that. It's like, I mean, the comment here you know, a few weeks ago, I rarely trust people that tell me they're fine. They just, I just don't have a lot of trust in that, man. It's like if they're always fine, I'm like, there's no way. Like, I've only lived on this earth about 50 years, and I know that's not true. You can't be fine every day. Like, it just it doesn't work that way. I'm like, come on, man. You're always fine. Like, I, I see all the time. Like, hey, man, how you doing? Fine. Like, okay. You're fine every day. That's pretty wrong. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but I think what we see is, like, sometimes our darkest moments come after an exhausting experience. Uh, little secret into me, man. My wife will tell you. Uh, I probably feel the absolute, this is going to be crazy. I do these events called Move, and, and I love them. And, and for me, when I teach like this, when I preach, two totally different experiences for me. But man, when I preach, I feel like I'm poured out like a drink offering. I give everything. I mean, I'm sweating, worn out. I've, I've laid everything out I've got on that stage. And I walk off that stage, and my wife will tell you, on Saturday morning, man, I, I just want to be alone. I don't want to talk to people. I'm second-guessing. I don't feel like that went well. Do you ever have that, that season in your life where you second-guess yourself? Usually it comes after you like you've poured out, you've tried something. And the crazy thing is, a lot of times it comes after a victory, after something went really, really well. You know, it's, we sit back and we criticize it, we analyze it, and we can all of a sudden find ourselves in this, this funk, man. We're just, we're just kind of miserable. And we're like, wait, why do I feel like things should be good? And they're not. Like you have a really successful moment, everyone tells you a great job, but you walk away going, I could have done this, I could have done that, that didn't go well, man, I messed that up, I should have said this, should have done that, should have gone there, should have, and, and that game can be completely exhausting, and we find God's prophet in a really dark place tonight. I mean dark. So let's get into it. Here we go. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. I, I wonder what that story plays out like. Like, at first, like, I don't know if, I don't know. I can't read the tone of what that conversation's like. Like, he's like, Jezebel, you won't believe what happened. God showed up today. And all of a sudden, you know, the more he talks, the more he can just see her body language beginning to change. He's like, uh-oh, uh, this turns quickly for him. And it says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life like that, like one of them. Well, first of all, man, Jezebel's bold. 
Okay? He just killed 850 of your prophets, and now you're going to rend your mouth at this guy. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I would look at it and go, the man just called down fire. Okay? He just like, do you understand? He just brought rain after three and a half years. Like, what are you doing? Like, they dumped, remember they dumped 12 things of water on this. Like, she knows the story. But this is a woman that is literally hell-bent. I mean, she is. She is just evil incarnate. She is demonic. And she's coming after him. She is on her way to take him out. The next three words are baffling. The next five words are overwhelming. Elijah was afraid and ran. Whoa. Whoa. Time out. That doesn't make sense. That's not the Elijah we know. This, I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit. Well, let's, just, let's just look at this real quick. Let's, look at, let's just turn back to chapter 17, verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. And then you look at verse 3, or verse 5. So he did. You skip over to verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him. Verse 10. So he went. You can skip over real quick to, to chapter 18, the beginning of the, the chapter there. And it's after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So Elijah went. I mean, do you see a bit of a consistency here? What's Elijah was afraid and ran. What's missing in this story? This is, he's tired, but, but what's missing when you compare it with that? And yeah, he's tired, but what's missing? Whose voice is missing? God's voice is missing. God didn't tell him to run. Now, there was a time he told him to go hide. This is not that time. Elijah right now is not listening to God. Elijah is just completely lost his perspective. He's not listening to God right now. It just says Elijah was afraid. That word afraid means like he saw and he feared for his life. I wonder, I wonder if, if literally this, these words from Jezebel are not just being passed down to him. Because it, it says she sent a messenger. But I wonder what it was about that messenger that just filled his heart with dread. Yeah. Yeah. She must have been a bad, bad woman. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to run for your life. I still remember one time, it's still a funny story to me, where uh, some of you guys have been around here long enough, and if he was listening to the podcast, he would laugh about it. But I used to hang out with this kid named Mitch Jones. He had a brother named Mike, and I love Mike. Mike was awesome. But I still remember the day I made Mike mad. Oh, man. Mike was so big. Uh, and he, he was a lot older than me, but I was a little more agile. We'll just say that. Uh, he was bigger and older. And I remember Mike after me, like after me. Like, I think he's going to kill me. I just mouthed off to him one too many times because I popped off. I just, I just had a mouth. And I ran, I ran my mouth one too many times. All of a sudden, Mike jumped up, and he took off after me. And I'm like, I'm going to die. Like, he had a look in his eye that was not like, Oh, he's irritated. No, he's going to kill me, man. Now, I remember being at Mitch's house and just running for my life, running and running laps with Mike 
still pursuing me. My last ditch effort is I tried to hurdle a barbed wire fence, caught my leg. I still have the scar running all the way down my leg where the barbed wire stuck on my leg and ripped all the way down. And I was still so afraid that even though my leg, like, I pull it, man, and there's, like, skin on this. My blood just, leg's just gushing blood. And all of a sudden, Mike comes through the fence. I'm like, run! And I just kept going, man. It's like, I am not, I don't remember how I ever got away. I just ran. I mean, I had blood in my shoe, my sock. I was a mess. I don't know if you ever feel like you've ever had to run. Like, you're going to get it now. I've had brothers, all that kind of stuff. Some of you guys have actually done stuff real, like military service, where you had to run for your life. This is no joke, like Mike chasing me. This is real. He's running for his life. And the phrase he used, I'm going to get into a lot later on. It says, when he came to Beersheba. Now that, my friends, is a big deal. You know, we always slow down. The phrase, anybody, anybody been around, read enough of the Old Testament, you know the phrase that they would always use to describe the distance within Israel. There's a phrase that you use all the time. Anybody ever remember what it is? It has Beersheba in it. Anytime they want to talk about the distance, how far it was in Israel, they'd say, man, that, that's the distance of Dan to Beersheba. It shows up all the time in the Old Testament. It's a little phrase. And it's like saying, man, that's like, that's like L.A. to New York. That, that's what we would say to talk about distance. You're like, oh, man, that's like Miami to Seattle. You know, it's, it's, it, we would say that if you were to say that, L.A. to New York, that kind of, sco- that kind of it covers the breadth. When it says that he went all the way down to Beersheba, what that means is he went as far as he humanly possibly could go. He ran as far as far. This is like uh, when Jonah turns and he's going to go to Tarshish, as far away in the known world as he can possibly go. When Jonah turns in that boat and he sets sail, he's trying to get as far away as, as humanly possible. It's not just that he ran and hide. Like in the process of running, all the different times, all the different journeys, even where God's going to send him, he's going to cover 300 miles is what he'll end up covering among all the different distances coming up. He's running for his life, getting as far as he possibly can, uh, humanly as far away as he can. He said, uh, let's walk through a few things. I think he loses his perspective. I want to talk through a few things. One, I think he, he lost sight of the fact that just because he had a short-term victory, the war wasn't over. He had a short-term victory, and he thought, man, we got this. We won. And I think he greatly underestimated, man, and, and wasn't factoring through what was going to be coming his way. I think he, he underestimated his enemy. Man, one of the things I cannot stand, sometimes I'll see kids and, and, and students or even, even adults, and we kind of poke fun at Satan and, you know, mess like, oh, like, he, like he's some sort of chump. Or, or we'll, we'll talk about, you know, like, oh, you know, Satan, you know, he's a punk, you know, or, or even sometimes the way we draw him, you know, it's like this little thing, red guy with a tail and this little pitchfork, and he always looks kind of skinny, emaciated, and like, oh, he's no big deal. We, we just turn him this cartoon character. And I'm always reminded of Jude, the book of Jude, when it says that the archangel Michael, when he got into an argument over the body of Moses, it says not even the archangel, not even he dared rebuke. Satan. Even the archangel Michael, when he got in, you read, I think it's like Jude 9 or something like that. You can go back and look at it. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it says that when he gets into dispute, and I don't know what this dispute is over the body of Moses. I'm like, can we not get some clarity on this? Like, what, what is that all about? I'm like, come on. But it says even in the book of Jude, in the New Testament, the archangel Michael, when he got in dispute with, with Satan over the body of Moses, didn't dare rebuke him. And I would encourage this man, and I'm not telling you you need to fear your enemy, I think greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, no doubt. I'm not trying to say that. But I do think, man, I would encourage you to have 
Respect is not the right word. I can't find the right word. If you've got it, give it to me. But, but I would encourage you to have a bit of understanding of how deadly and how strong your enemy is. And, and to recognize that in the same way that I would respect a lion if I met him in the open field, I wouldn't just act like you're no big deal. I meet a copperhead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect that animal. You know what I mean? I'm going to like, whoa. I mean, I meet a black widow, a brown recluse. It doesn't matter. Anything that, to, that can take my life, I'm going to have a little bit of respect for. And I think that at this moment, we can do the same thing that he does here. He underrates Jezebel. He, he, he forgets her. He's like, oh, we won. We got this. I'm like, bro, 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 you forgot. You won one battle. This war is far from over, and you have underestimated your opponent. Greatly underestimated her. She's not done, man. She's not done. And man, you can go through this process where you feel like you've defeated the enemy. You've had an amazing prayer time. God does an amazing thing. He's moved in power. You think, man, we got this. Do you understand how many thousands of years Satan's been at this game? Sometimes I think he's more than content to give you a little victory. Let you have your little win. We'll give him this one. We'll give him this one. He'll get a little confident. Sometimes letting you have a victory. And I don't, think, I don't think Satan lets Elijah have this victory. Please don't misunderstand where I'm going with this text. But I think sometimes after a victory is the best time he's got to come at you. After a victory is the best time he's got where he can really do some damage. Because after you're flying high and you're feeling great, he's like, sweet. I got you right where I want you now. Buckle up. Hard times are coming. Elijah loses perspective. And honestly, we know that a poor loser can be vicious. We talked about the fact that he's lost his commitment to follow God's word. I think that's the second thing we see. He's lost his commitment to follow God's word. Every other time God spoke, he went. Not this time. I think he also lost his vision of, of what it meant to see the greatness of God. That, that phrase I told you, be afraid, can be translated, he saw. He saw and was scared out of his ever-loving mind. And that fear caused him to take his eyes off the greatness of God. Um, Man, that happens to all of us. We see the word cancer, or we see something going on in the world. We see something going on in our family. We see death. We see disease. We see things like divorce, debt, whatever you want to call it. And we can see that obstacle, and we can forget that our God is great enough to overcome, to defeat. But sometimes it can be crippling at a heart level. It can just be like, man, we just feel like so discouraged and so depressed, like, man, God, I just, I just had this victory, and now this has taken place. And I don't know what all is causing it, but because of his fatigue, as you mentioned, because he's exhausted, because of his despair, he just runs. Just runs. Totally different than when he flees in 17. And I think even the best of believers can lose sight of what God can do. I think he lost his will to fight. And I'm not just trying to pick at him. I think he's just done. He fled. Goes all the way to Beersheba. And he finds himself abandoning another really important thing. Let's look at this phrase. He says, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. It's going to be an important thing. We're going to get to that a little bit more here in a little bit. It's going to be important. He says, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. Okay, so it's not just that he goes, you just need to see this distancing that's going on. He is completely afraid. Because of his fear, he's exhausted. 
He's forgotten that God, the same God that brought down fire and the same God that brought rain can take care of Jezebel. But he doesn't believe it anymore and he's just afraid. And so he just runs, just runs, runs as far as he possibly can. When he gets there, I wonder what his servant thinks the whole time he's running with him. Because it says he's running for his life. This servant's got to be exhausted. What is going on? And it's not enough just to get to Beersheba. He tells his servant, you stay here. And then he isolates himself. I mean, therein lies danger. Man, there's so much stuff we want to unpack here. I've got, I got to slow down. Um, let's walk through this. Um, the writer says, I don't want to touch that one yet. Let's slow down. I, I, I'm going to go, get ahead of myself. Um, I think he lo- the, the next thing we're going to see is that he loses his desire to live. Let's go a little bit further. So he came to the broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he laid down under the tree and fell asleep. Okay, th- this is full-fledged depression playing out right now. Full-fledged depression. And listen, we need to be careful as we get into, because there's all kinds of different fa- you know, forms and fashions of depression. Uh, and, and by no means am I trying to equate what Elijah goes to in his response as somehow a template for how to deal with all mental illness. Uh, I think for a long time, the church has not been nearly, and I say church, I don't mean, I've told you this a hundred times, I'm not talking about CCO, I mean the church in general. We've been slow to respond to this issue of mental illness. Um, you know, we'll say things like, you know, we'll just, we'll just throw out passing comments, you know, uh, you know, about, well, man, do you have a sin in your life? You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Some of that is going to be, you've got chemical imbalances that come to play here. And there are physiological issues. Sometimes I think, I think Elijah's here, honestly, his is more of a spiritual issue that's playing out in his life. But man, do I, do I think that every form of mental illness is just, just an attack of the devil on you? No, not any more than I think that the fact that I need glasses or the, the fact that some of you guys in this room, you know, take different medications. I think, I think sometimes physiologically, we just, we have problems. We have issues. It just happens. And I think we need to be careful as we approach that. I do think this particular instance right here is a spiritual attack. So hopefully you can hear that I'm trying to draw a distinction. I don't think you can just categorize all mental health as a spiritual condition that, man, they're under attack from Satan or a demon or whatever. I think that's a really unhealthy approach when you look at mental illness. I think it's toxic. I think it's dangerous. I think you have to look physiologically at that person and say, man, what all is going inside on the side of your body? What all is happening within you? And to, to really assess it and understand it. This case, this case I think is a pretty direct attack from an enemy. This case is, is much more spiritual in nature. Okay? So we can get into some of the nuances of that. Some of you guys in the medical field could talk about that way more than I can. But I think we need to be careful about trying to, to take the template of mental illness and what he's going through and try to apply it to everything. All right? Uh, and no doubt we've got an epidemic of, of that going on right now. And um, man, it's huge. But we'll, we'll get to that here, here in a little bit. But he's lost his, deli- his desire to live. Hopefully, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away. If, if I was reading the story, sometimes I, I get a little disappointed that I can't read these stories for the first time. I, I've heard them so many times, I know what's coming, that I, I, I miss that marvel, that amazement. Like, slow down for just a second, please. Like, just, just take a breath and slow down. You just read a story about a guy who raised a kid back to life, who through prayer kept this widow from running out of, you know, 
what she needed to have food to keep her family alive, who was confronted and, you know, dealt straight on with this immoral king and his wife, who's, you know, literally defeated 800 prophets, called down fire, consumed this, this bull that was just drenched in water. My word, brought the rain. And if I could tell you that, honestly, man, that like four or five verses later, the words you'd be hearing out of his mouth were, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors, and he laid down under a tree and fell, to, fell asleep. Whoa, what a jump. I mean, I think if we were reading this like any other story the first time, we'd like, it'd be like whiplash. Like, what? This guy just had the greatest success And now we find him wanting, asking God to take his life. There have been other people in the Bible that have done that. Moses asked God to do that. Remember that story? Moses said, God, I'd I'd just rather die now. Jonah did that. Jonah said the same thing, man. He's basically said, you know, Moses told God in, uh, in Numbers eleven fifteen. he said, kill me right now. <laughs> we forget about those stories, don't we? We think about the, the man Moses parting the waters, defeating Pharaoh. We forget that in Numbers 11, he said, kill me right now. Job wished that he had never been born in Job 10, 18 through 19. Jeremiah cursed the day that, of his birth in Jeremiah 20. And then Jonah asked God to take away his life because death was better than life in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. So let's just slow down. And for, for those in this room, even as an adults, that have really struggled on dark days, struggled with how we feel about our lives, struggled about whether or not we want to go on, struggled about whether or not it's worth it, that have gone through very, very difficult times. Let me tell you, man, you're... You're in real company. And I love the fact that God puts this in here. Because I think sometimes as believers, we don't preach very often about Moses wanting to die, Jeremiah and Jonah never wanting to be born. We don't preach very often about the fact that that right here, Elijah's like, God, just kill me. I don't want to be alive anymore. Like, this is like, this isn't he's having a bad day, folks. This isn't it's a difficult moment. This is a man who's on the brink. He's at the fringe. He's run as far as he could possibly run, and he can't run any farther, and he finally just collapses on a broom tree and goes, God, I want to die. I want to be done. I don't want to be here anymore. I've been there with students often. I don't want to say names, but I remember getting a phone call and showing up at a house with one of my kids. Uh, he didn't show up to church that morning. His dad called. His dad said, uh, he won't let me in the house. I'm like, what do you mean let you in the house? And he's like, I can't go in. And I remember showing up to this house and just going in and sitting down with this kid and just going, man. I mean, I'm looking at him going, bro, you're 17 years old. You're brilliant. You're smart. You're funny. You're a phenomenal musician and all of this. And all he could say is, I just want to die. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go on. Those were painful moments. I can't imagine how many times in your years, Ken, you've dealt with people that have felt that way. And I guess I would say, 
there's some patterns in Elijah's life that if you feel that way, you need to pay attention to. Number one, stop running. Stop running. Stop. That running is just sending you further and further, deeper and deeper into isolation. Stop running. Stop and admit you're in a bad, bad place. Most of the time we can't do that. We just keep pushing, 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 pushing. And I think one of the best things we can do in life when it comes to mental health is talk to someone. Have a conversation. Open your mouth and say, I'm not doing well, man. I'm not healthy. My, my head is messed up right now. And I don't know if that's going to be physiological and you need to go see a medical doctor. If it's going to be psychological and you need to go see a counselor. If you've got some sort of spiritual oppression that's taking place, that there's a, a deep wound of sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think depression comes in many forms and fashions. But I think it's real. And we see it play out in Moses' life, Jonah's life, Jeremiah's life. We see it play out in Elijah's life. And if they deal with it, why can't you? Why is it okay for those guys to deal with it? It's okay for us to read their stories, but you would feel like, well, no, I couldn't let everybody know that. Like I just said how glad I am this chapter's in the Bible. Like, aren't we glad it's there? But so often in life, we're afraid to talk about it in our own lives. We're afraid to admit we're struggling, afraid to admit that this is hard, afraid to admit that we're dealing with dark thoughts, afraid to admit that we're not in a healthy place. And I would say, if anything else, the best thing you do is take the example of God. Let people know what's going on. I think the next thing that he does here that's really, really, really destructive is not only does he run, he isolates himself. Dangerous. Dangerous place, man. Isolation is toxic for believers. One of the first things that God does in Genesis when he makes man is what does he say about him? After he says it's good, what's one of the next things he says about man? Not good to be alone. One of Satan's number one tactics in life, you'll see it happen every time, is he loves to isolate what he does with that demoniac finally gets this guy out in the tombs living alone out by himself and elijah does here that's really really dumb it's this little phrase when he came to Beersheba and judah he left his servant there he walked away from community and i don't know like well maybe he's going back for a cherith moment no because god hasn't sent him here god didn't send him to Beersheba. god didn't send him to the broom tree and god didn't tell him to leave his servant behind like, I don't know what happens if he's just like, man, I don't want to die, so I'm just going to push this away. I'm just going to push it all away. The amount of students this summer that we had, and some of you guys know we did, if you've been around MOVE, we did a full film. You can actually watch it on Amazon Prime called Unseen. And if you're having some issues right now or you get friends or family that are struggling with mental health, the film's called Unseen. You can find it on Amazon Prime right now if you want to watch it. Uh, we did it at CIY just addressing the issue of mental health. And it really comes down to a few things. Number one, talk. Talk. Don't isolate yourself. Talk and find community. Have a conversation with someone. What Elijah, what Elijah does here is he, he runs as far as he can run, and then when he gets to the very end, he pushes people away. And I would say if you're dealing with depression, you're dealing with that darkness in your heart right now, and you know, and I say darkness because there's lots of words we could use, but I think that's a, it's a weight, it's a heaviness, it's a darkness. If you're feeling that weight, that heaviness, stop running and stop pushing people away. Stop isolating yourself and just say, I need, I need people around me. And he, we're going we're to see that play out in his life. We'll get to the proactive stuff here in a little bit. But he separates himself from strengthening relationships. He's completely isolated. 
Discouraged people are usually lonely people. And depression, is, it's not only caused by the absence of community. It's not. But I think the absence of community can, perpetu- can perpetuate it. I don't think it's caused by the fact you don't have community. But I think the fact that you find yourself not in community, I think that actually extends that depression. And one of the best things you can do in that moment is say, I, I need to be with people right now. This is not a healthy place where I'm isolated, I'm off by myself. Like, I, I've got to figure out a way to reintegrate into some friendships. I've got to find a way to reintegrate with family. I've got to find a way to reintegrate. Like, I don't know what I need to do now, but, but this is not it. Setting alone in this space for long periods of time. Now, I do understand moments of retreat. I do understand moments of pulling away. But I think when you find yourself in a really dark place of depression, that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. Now's the time you need to say, because of where I'm at, being alone is probably not the best place for me to be. Probably the best thing for me to do is I need to find myself, put myself in a small group, reach out to my family, call some friends, have a conversation, get out of this house, get out of this space, quit isolating, quit pushing myself off, and I need, I need to force myself to reintegrate back with community. I think that is one of, I'm saying it's the only way. And I'm not saying that community alone is going to solve all your problems, but I am saying it can help greatly. I'd say depression is not only caused by, oh, I already talked about that. I'd say if you're tired and discouraged, isolation is what you need. We talked about that. Um, and we were never made to be an island by ourselves. I think God has provided us with this, this beautiful thing called the church and this beautiful thing called family and, uh, and these beautiful things called friendships. Lean into those. Uh, he should have stayed with his friend, and he doesn't. Elijah makes a mistake. He's making one mistake after another one. And I think it's human nature to isolate ourselves when we feel down. Um, and that's going to happen for a season, but we can't stay there. Uh, I was telling you earlier, man, one of the darkest times for me after I preach on a Friday night after move. I'll see tons of kids making decisions left and right. Kids accepted Christ, all kinds of stuff. And I'll walk off that stage, and within about four or five hours, I feel miserable. Why? What in the world? I just experienced one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Why do I now feel horrible? This doesn't make any sense. Like this, this doesn't, I can't wrap my head around it. Something good just happened and I feel bad. But I think sometimes that happens, man. That we come off of this high. For some people, it's a holiday. For sometimes it's, it's, it's time with family, whatever it is. And when that ends, we don't know how to handle that. We just find ourselves... Like, I don't know how to, how, to, how to adjust right now to this letdown. And, and man, I was telling Tron earlier, there's so many times we, I think sometimes you can find yourself like Elijah where he was dealing, it's not just victory or good things, sometimes it's just like intensity. You know, you meet people that, that come out of, a, out of a place where they've had an influential place of work, and then they go into this place of retirement, and now their community is gone. Their, 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 the leadership they had in this business or this place, it's gone. The influence, all of that is gone. And all of a sudden, what they looked forward to, and it was going to be amazing, be awesome. All of a sudden, they wake up one morning and no one's asking their opinion. No one's getting their approval. No one's coming to them for like, hey, what's your steps? And all of a sudden, guess what? Somebody else got hired and took their place and the business went on without them. It can happen we raise our children and they're grown and they're empty nests. We're like, they don't really need us anymore. It can it can happen when guys come back from military and they're used to pressure, they're used to intensity, they're used to, to living in a brotherhood and in a community. And all of a sudden, you know, the one thing they longed for a whole time was just to be home. And they come home and guess what? The welcome wasn't quite what they thought it was going to be. And reintegration of the family has been a little bit awkward. And 
They're trying to figure out what it's like to be a dad again or a mom again in this community. And they, hey, this, this isn't what I thought it would be like. I didn't think it was going to be like this. this. This doesn't feel right. I think depression hits people in a lot of different ways, man. We have this altruistic view of what we hope it's going to be like, just like Elijah. He thought the whole nation would repent. He thought, you know, Jezebel be dethroned, new king. It's all going to be great. And it's not great. And so he runs and he isolates himself. I do think he's suffering depression because he's exhausted. And our most vulnerable moments are usually after something exhausting. Sometimes victory can be the worst of all. Let's talk, about the, let's talk about some of the areas where he's exhausted. One, I think he's physically exhausted. He'd been on the run for three years. He's just ran. He's just spent this season in prayer that's absolutely intense. He just ran 17 miles through a rainstorm. And now he just got told when that's all done that a woman wants to, you know, basically wants to cut his head off. Okay. And then we read that the next day he, he runs for the wilderness. In order to get to Mount Horeb, he's going to go about 300 miles on foot. 300 miles he's going to travel. He is physically tired. And when you're physically tired, I think you're emotionally, you are spiritually and emotionally vulnerable. Uh, I know, man, the worst things, it plays out in small ways. The, the micro ways it plays out in our house is that when I'm physically tired, I can't make, I will not make big decisions in our home. So this has nothing to do with depression, but it plays out in micro ways. I'll talk about some of the macro ways. For me, the small ways are, you know, my wife will come and she knows the rule. It used to be when I was younger, 10 o'clock. But now the rule is 9 o'clock. I will not make a difficult decision after 9 p.m. I just won't. Like if she comes like, hey, I really want to talk to you about something. It's like, baby, I will meet you at 5.30 a.m. I'll meet you at 5 a.m. I'll meet you at 6 a.m. Like we'll meet in the morning or a cup of coffee. I'll cook breakfast and we'll have a great conversation. But after 9 p.m., like, I'm tired, man. Like, the thing I always tell my wife, I'll say, don't look at the clock. Could you go to bed right now? Like, honestly, don't look at the clock. Doesn't matter what time it is. Think about it. Could you go crash right now? Because sometimes for me, after a long day, it's been constant questions, constant issues. What about this? What about this? And my brain's just tired. And I know that when I'm physically and mentally tired, I'm just not in a place to think straight. And I can't tell you how many times I've looked at her and said, why did you force me to have this conversation late at night? Because I say things I don't mean and I'm dealing with that mop up for a week because I'm an idiot. And I just run my mouth. I pop off and I say something. And I don't mean it. She's like, well, out of the overflow of the heart. I'm like, don't do that to me. I don't mean that. I was just trying to be done with the conversation. I was like, I was tired. And so we have that rule. Just no deep conversations after it used to be 10. Now it's nine because I'm older. But, it's just one of, but I also know that there's different seasons in my life. I'm like, I will not make a difficult decision. I mean, how many times that I thought after being gone away from my family all summer long, how much longer can I do this? How much longer can I travel this many miles, living on planes, living out of suitcases, taking care of whatever? I mean, you'll, you'll get this attitude, man, I'm taking care of everybody else's kids and I can't take care of my own and all this different stuff. I'm always on the road. I'm always gone. Da, da, da. And I know for me, I will not make a big decision in August. Just won't do it. Just won't do it, man. I will not make a life-changing decision in August because my frame of mind is not right. I think sometimes we have to recognize we're physically in that space. We have to recognize I'm not in a good place to be doing this right now. And I think, honestly, it's an honorable thing to do, to say, I'm tired. To look at your spouse and go, I know we need to make a decision on this. I know we need to talk about it, but I'm beat. Can we, like, book an appointment? We'll sit down, open the calendar up. We'll set the time. We'll have the conversation. But right now, that conversation is going to be productive. I think Elijah right now is because he's physically exhausted, he's just making one bad decision after another one. I think he's also emotionally exhausted. 
I think he's vulnerable after that victory. He talked about that. Paul says this. I find it interesting. He says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. What, Paul? Why didn't God just take that away? Why is that allowed? He goes on to say, twice, Paul says, he was afflicted with this irrevocable, you know, this thorn in the flesh, verse 8, in order to humble him. He goes on to say that he, he's got to rely on God's sufficient grace and power. Paul couldn't stay on that mountaintop experience continuously. Like eventually, it's going to crash, man. You know, we, I, I talk to youth pastors all the time, you know, and, and they're like, you know, we, I hate it when parents tell kids, well, you know what, this is just a mountaintop experience after they go like a week of camp, a week of move. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And they're awesome. Like one of the worst things we can do is start, well, eventually you're going to come down off that mountain. Well, well, don't rush it. Like let them enjoy the season, man. If you ever hike to the top of the mountain, you're there. Enjoy the view for a while. Yeah, it will crash. It will happen. One of the greatest things I learned about, about recovery was one day I said, I, I, I watched surfers when I was living out in California. I just watched these guys. And I had a couple of kids in my youth group that surfed. And it was really pretty fascinating watching them. Like, and and it's, it's interesting. These, these waves, and I know surfers listen to this might like, oh, you're totally wrong. But they, they come in sets. And like, not all waves are created equal. If you ever watch them, like some are bigger than other ones. And I'd sit there and I'd watch these guys. And they'd watch wave after wave go by. And then all of a sudden, up and down, like for hundreds of yards, Guys that can't even talk to each other, at the same time, it all of a sudden pop up on this one wave and they'd all ride it. And then guess what? As good as that ride was, you know what happened every single time? Without fail. Some of the most amazing waves, amazing rides, guess what always happened? They crash. First thing, you're right, they will go back out. That's next, but they crash every time. They hit the shore, they hit the sand, and it's over. But I never saw those guys go, that's it. We're done. I give up. It's over. That's good as it's going to get. I think sometimes you have to understand these rhythms that happen in life. And give yourself some space to recognize, hey, I just crashed. But I'm okay. Like, I just crashed. Like, that was a good ride. But it's over. I just, I didn't go how I thought it was going to go. And it ended way quicker than I thought it was going to end. But I just crashed. And at some point, you go, you know what, I, I think I'm going I'm to turn, I'm going to go back out. I'm going to meet that again. I'm going to seek it again. I'm going to go back out. I'm not just going to stay here in this place of discouragement and despair because of what ended. I'm going to say, God, can you bring me something new, something fresh? So we'll keep moving. He's exhausted emotionally. Spiritually, we talked about the fact that he was drained. Um, he's, he's undergone intense opposition. Uh, evil takes its toll on us. I could tell story after story on that uh, when, you know, and I got to be careful because there's people that I know and I love that are going to listen, listen to this podcast. But man, some, some of my worst times are when I've got to mop up other people's sin messes. Uh, and I know you can say like, I think when, when Paul writes, bear one another's burdens, there's an active part of that. Where we actually seek them out to help bear their burdens. But I think sometimes there's this this thing where it's, it's sometimes it, it can wear on you. Other people's sin and other people's hurt and other people's pain, it's not like you just somehow forget about it. You know, I keep, I keep picking on Kenny because this is really kind of the domain he lives in. But as, as much as he probably tries to draw boundaries after this many years, it hurts still when you're watching people go through difficulty. 
when you love others and you care about them and you're carrying their pain, and I think at this point, man, spiritually, he, he's been dealing with evil and he's tired. He's tired. And I think he's worn out as a servant. He's, he's done everything he can do for God and he's seen great things happen. You know, and I was joking about me at, at a week of move, but I bet if Mark Christian is going to be vulnerable, there are moments on a Sunday morning where he's done, he's getting his car going home, going, man, how much longer can I do this? I mean, when you find yourself in a place where you're constantly giving, it's not a healthy place to be. If you're always giving, you're like, man, I'm a giving person. Let me just give you a word of caution. If you're always giving, that should be a massive red flag in your life. That's a toxic place to live. That's an unhealthy place to be. If you find yourself that I'm always in a giving place, because if you're never receiving, that means you're never healing. If you're never receiving, you're never going to be restored. If you're always giving out, always giving out, you will find yourself in a place like Elijah. You have to have people that speak into your life. You have to have activities that speak into your life. You have to have things that, that breathe life back into you. I had an old timer once tell me, man, you never waste time when you take time to sharpen the axe. Never waste time when you take time to sharpen the axe. And you know, the bow that is always bent will break. The bow that's always bent will break. And if you take a rubber band and you just keep stretching it and stretching it, it eventually will snap. And we wonder why we see people having this collapse. It's because they don't take time to reset to allow God to speak into them, to take the Sabbath. Even Jesus couldn't spend time giving all the time. Jesus couldn't do it. How can we? There are times where he withdrew to a lonely, solitary place to pray. And you know what he usually did? Took people with him. His habit was to take, hey, Peter, James, John, come with me, boys. And he withdraw off. To, even when he's going through some of his darkest moments and you find him dealing with it. I mean, you're going to tell me that Jesus didn't have any mental anxiety you're crazy. When he's in the garden and he's praying, saying, God, if there be any other way, take this cup. And he's praying to the point that there's drops of blood come from his head. Like that's anxiety. I mean, that is stress he's under, but he does in the context of community. But one of the things I'd say is that even Jesus throughout, throughout that passage at times said, man, I've got to withdraw from these people. I've got to go away. I've got to take care of my, myself right now. And so if you're a giver, man, I bless that. That's a beautiful thing. But if you're not receiving, that's dangerous. It's toxic and it's eventually going to devour you. So a few more things. Where am I at on time? Or we're good. I think Elijah, another mistake he makes here is he's drowning in self-pity. So let's get into some of the other mistakes that we make. He's drowning in self-pity here. Uh, Self-pity is a horrible emotion. Uh, It's one of those things that it's going to lie to you. Uh, It's going to exaggerate. Uh, you start saying words like, everybody thinks this. They always do that. And when you get into self-pity and you begin mourning yourself, you, you extrapolate the worst case scenario on the entire world. My whole family or all of my friends or this whole church, you, when you start hearing those kinds of words coming out in a negative, man, that is a self-pity flag being raised is what it is. And I'm not trying to like just pick at people because they have self-pity. I'm just saying it's a really dangerous emotion because it's only content when it devours you. It's the only time it's ever content is when it can completely take you out. Um, it, it, has, it won't be happy till it consumes you. Um, and I think Elijah's caught up in all these half-truths. Let's, let's look at the first one. In verse 4, he states this. Um, uh, no, that's not it. He, said, uh, he says, where am I at here? Oh, we're going to move on. He says, all at once, uh, an angel, in verse, uh, verse 5, touched him and said, get up and eat. 
He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, Get up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank, and he was strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So many things we're going to talk about here in a little bit. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty Israel. The Israelites who rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. There's so many dangerous things coming out in his words. That self-pity first shows up in verse 4 when he says he came to the broom tree. He sat down under and he prayed that he might die. And he says, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. There's so many things happening in him right now. That, that phrase that I'm no better than my ancestors. Let's deal with that one first of all. First of all, Elijah, who said you were better than them? I mean, this is a self-righteous attitude that he's dealing with right now. You know, I've been ve- very zealous for the Lord. Uh, okay, Elijah, we know. Stop being the martyr, Elijah. Okay, we understand you've been zealous for the Lord. You know, why, why are you trying to compare yourself to your parents, your ancestors, the other prophets? What are you, what are you, what are you hoping to gain here, Elijah? What, what, what's your angle? Man, we can, we can get in that sometimes. Well, I'm so much, I do more than anybody else. So nobody knows what I do around this house. Or nobody knows what I do around this business. Nobody knows what I do around this. If anybody had half the knowledge, I've worked so much harder than this person. And that self-pity stuff, man, it's just toxic. Elijah's living in that right now. He's living in it. Makes statements like in verse 10 that, you know, you know, They've, you know, they've abandoned your covenant. They've torn on your altars, you know, killed your prophets. I alone am left. They're looking to take my life. Well, the statement's partially true. The majority of people did forsake the Lord, but not all. Not all. He already knows that Obadiah has been holding back like a hundred and some guys. I mean, come on now, Elijah. You're just living in a self-pity land, man. You're just making stuff up. And and I think someone's in our marriage is like, I, I wish we had the comfort level going, hey, can you stop the self-pity? Like, I know that wouldn't play well, okay? I'd be like, <laughs> you say what to me? But I think at some level we need people in our lives who can do that. Like, man, can we, can we leave pity land for just a little bit and like, let's get an accurate view of reality? No, not everyone feels that way. Not everyone is doing that. We don't all think that about you. Like, no, you're not the only one doing things around here. You're not the only one that cares. You're not the... We have to watch that. It goes on, it says, uh, the Lord questioned him. And I love this phrase. I would think God would go, oh, Elijah, a little pity party. You know, here's a cake and a a candle for you. You know, you know, a little hat you can wear for your pity party, Elijah. But he doesn't do that. You know, I'm thinking I'd look at him and go, if it was my kid, you know, I'd look at him and go, I probably would pop off at him. I'd say something negative. But I love what God does here. And the word of the Lord. So here the word of the Lord's coming back to him. Look what he does, man. Look at God. What are you doing here, Elijah? How do you hear God saying that? What are you doing here, Elijah? I love that question. I I don't think it's harsh. Based on the tone that's going to come out in the rest of the story, I don't think it's condemning. I think God just kind of shows up and goes, Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? I found you. I don't know that it's the same tone that he has with Adam and Eve of, where are you? I 
I think this is a a softer tone. Elijah, what are you doing here, man? And maybe that's what you need to let God ask you. What, What are you doing here with this darkness you're dealing with, this depression, this anxiety, this hurt? What are you doing? What's going on in your heart? Doesn't beat him up. Doesn't hurt him. He just asks him a question. I think also he doesn't just deal with self-righteousness. He deals with self-importance. We talked about that. I am alone left. There's no one else. No one, you can't do this without me. The self-pity part plays out. We talked about that. But I want to talk about God's restoration now. We only got a few more minutes. I think he allows him to rest and restore. There's no sermon. There's no sermon. There's no blame. There's no shame. There's no rebuke. There's nothing happening right now that shows God's going to kick him upside the head. There's no, there's no like, you know, like, oh, I should have picked somebody else beside you. You just don't have what it takes. There's none of that. God's first response was just eat. <laughs> eat. First response that God gives in this moment is eat. I want you to, let's play this out for just a little bit. If you remember the story in John chapter 21, you can look in your Bibles there. It's an amazing story. The disciples, they go out to fish and Simon Peter is what the name he goes back to. Simon Peter goes out, takes, goes out to fish, takes all these guys out with him. And it's interesting, he goes back to his old name, and he goes back to his old occupation, and they, they head out in this boat, and they fish all night, and they don't catch anything. It's just like the story in Luke. Same thing's playing out. Jesus shows up at the shore, same way it plays out in Luke. Hey, guys, did you catch anything? I'm like, no. He's like, throw you down the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, they're like, what? Like, we've heard this before. Like, we know this story. So they throw the nets on the side of the boat. Boom! All of a sudden, the nets is hit. They're about to rip. And all of a sudden, man, Peter, Peter knows who it is. John is overjoyed. Like, it's the Lord! They're just screaming and yelling. And Peter, at that moment, wraps his outer garment on him. He's taking it off, and he just dives into the water. When's the last time that Peter jumped out of a boat to meet Jesus? What happened? He walked on water. Yeah, he sank eventually, but he walked on water. He walking on water today. He's just crawling back. Just crawling back. Goes a hundred and some yards, and all of a sudden he shows up on the shore to meet Jesus. And what has Jesus done? It says there's a fire of burning coals there. And that word that he used for fire in John is only used one other time. And it's the same word used for fire. John uses one other time. The same word when it says that their eyes met across the fire the third time that he denied. It says they made eye contact, and that's the same word for fire that he uses in the denial as he uses that day when they're cooking right there on the shore. Same word, same phrase. We get lots of words for fire, fire, flame, we can, inferno, all kinds of words we can use. They have different words, but, but John's setting the stage. The last time these two guys met eyeball to eyeball, the last time they met face to face over a fire, Peter was denying him. Then all of a sudden, he looks down and he says, hey, uh, Peter. Uh, how many guys, you guys got some fish? Yeah, and they're counting on Peter's like, oh, I'll go get them. And all of a sudden they sit down and they're, boom, there's bread already made and there's fish made. Man, when's the last time these guys, last time they ate together was the last supper and now we get the first breakfast. And all of a sudden he says, let's eat. Let's eat. I think there's something beautiful that we need to learn about God. We think he wants to rush so fast into changing us where sometimes I think he just wants to feed us. We want to rush so fast and God wants to fix us. God wants to fix this in me, wants to fix this in me. And we're so obsessed with like, I've got all these things wrong that God wants to fix. And God's like, can we, can we have a scone? Like a cup of coffee? Like, can we scramble some eggs real quick? Like, can we slow down here for just a second? 
I didn't, didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you're, you're part of that. Like, can we slow down for just a second? The last time they heard the word of the Lord, man, he was telling them to go to battle. And now he hears God's voice again saying, where are you? All right, Elijah, let's eat. Had to be an amazing meal. It had to remind him of those days back at Cherith. Had to remind him of those days when he was at Cherith and God was feeding him, whether it be through ravens or whatever else. Like all these memories are flooding back. And I love that beautiful picture of community. Instead of rebuking him, God gives him a cake. And I love the tenderness of God there. Where we find forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to all of me who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest because I am gentle. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 Jesus reminds us that He is the bread of life in John chapter 6. And not only does He give Him breakfast, but even the fact that God speaks to Him. How could God speak to this guy that's asking to die? You know, God could have said, fine, I'll honor that request. Boom, heart stop, you're done. You know, there's all kinds of ways God could have honored that. You want to die? Fine, die. You know, bam, I'll find somebody else. He didn't, he didn't need a Elijah to restore Elisha, who's coming up next. He could have just done it anyway. He could have raised up Elisha without Elijah. But God is tender. That whole bruised reed and smoldering wick conversation we've had, like his tenderness for us, I think sometimes we, we, we can grow up in churches or around parents or other people that we see this view of God as always condemning, he's always coming after us, he's always on the attack, he's always wanting to, you know, sharpen us, make us better. Rah, rah, rah. And I think we miss sometimes the tenderness of God, the pursuit, the love. That God shows up, not just in Beersheba, but a day's walk in under a broom tree and says, Hey, bud, what are you doing here? What's going on with you? He's asking a heart question. Not, not a, it's not like he wonders where he is. God knows exactly. Why are you here, Elijah? And he lets Elijah whine. He lets him whine. If you read the text, Elijah just keeps on going. He says, he says, I've been very zealous, Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. God's like, you think I'm not aware of this, Elijah? <laughs> you tell me something I don't know? They put your problems together, sword. I'm the only one left. And the Lord said, go out, go out and stand on the mountain. Go out in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Now, you've got to keep in mind, where was he in verse 9? He's in a cave. So not only is he on a day's end, he's now tucked away in this little cave. He says, Elijah, come out of the cave. Come into the light. Come on, let's talk. Go out in the mountain. Let's get in the fresh air to have a conversation now. And he says, uh, he says, the Lord's about to pass by. Reminds what he did with Moses. He says, and then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Can you imagine how loud that was? But the Lord was not on the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not on the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and Elijah heard it. He pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your promises to death by the sword. It's like rewind, Elijah. It's like, Elijah, I heard you the first time. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. God's like, did you not just see the power of what I can do? 
I just sent a mighty wind that just rocked the mountains. I just sent an earthquake. I just sent a fire. I just spoke to you in a whisper like Elijah. You've forgotten who I am. And the Lord said, go back the way you came. Go back to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Anoint Yehu, son of Nuishi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Yehu will put to death any who escape from the sword of Hazel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape by the sword of Yehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. The fact that God speaks to him is beautiful. And on that mountain, God reminds Elijah of his power. I don't think we need to get captivated. Well, what does the earth, you know, the earthquake mean? What does a wind mean? What does a fire mean? I think God's just using natural things to show his magnitude. I mean, for me, when I get in that space, I have to get out of my house. And some of the most powerful thing for me is just go sit next to the stream and just watch the power of the rivers that flows by or watch the wind through the trees or just see the power of who he is and just listen to that still small voice of God speaking. Elijah needs to remember the past, but he also needs to know that there's more to the Lord than just fire. And in that whisper, he calls Elijah's name and he speaks to him. That phrase, a soft whisper, it only appears two of the times in the Bible. It appears in Job 4.16 and in Psalm 107.29. And in both passages, soft whisper, in both passages, both time, the context is of rest and refreshment in the midst of pain, distress, and fear. So that soft whisper is, a, is, is a, an invitation to rest. That soft whisper was not like, you're a screw-up. It was not what it was. The soft whisper was, I'm bigger than you. No, the soft whisper was, hey, come here, sit down, relax. Elijah, I got this. We're okay. It's just, it's always a voice of rest. I think the last thing that he does, uh, he gives a vision of the future. He lets him know that, Elijah, even in the midst of your mistakes, I'm not done with you. And we'll kind of, I'm going to fast forward to the last thing. I love this list of glimpses. We're going to get into this next week. He gives him back something that he desperately needs. Remember, he leaves the servant. I don't know where the servant goes, but God's about to give Elisha special, Elijah a special gift. He's going to give him a guy named Elisha, which means God saves. And I think that means a lot. He's a farmer and apparently a very wealthy farmer because he's got like 12 teams of oxen. Elisha's a wealthy man. And, uh, and it's going to be an amazing end of this chapter that he pulls him out of this place of isolation, living in a cave, off on his own, and he pulls him back into community and restores him back into purpose. And God's going to give him a successor, but it won't just be a successor. It's going to be a close personal friend. I love what it says about him at the very... Let's, let's finish up this, this verse. So Elijah went from there and he found Elisha. He was plying with 12 yoke of oxen. He himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and he threw his cloak around him. We'll talk about some of this stuff next week. Uh, Elisha left his oxen. He ran after Elijah. He said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. He said, and then I'll come with you. Go back. Uh, what have I done to you? We're going to talk about this, some of this stuff next week. Uh, but I want to talk about this. So Elisha left him and went back, took his yoke and oxen, slaughtered him, all that kind of stuff. But one thing it'll say in here is it said he followed Elijah and he became his attendant. And that became his attendant means he ministered to him. That's what that phrase means. It's like, man, God gave him not just a co-worker, not just a successor, but he gave him a friend. 
He gave him somebody who would understand his pain, who would walk with him, somebody who's going to love him. I mean, the camaraderie that's going to happen between these two men throughout the rest of this time, this handoff is not just... Sometimes we reduce this thing down to, well, like, let's talk about the handoff of leadership and succession plans. This is way more than that. This is a restoration of a man and God saying, Elijah, I know what you need. You need someone to save you. And his name is Elisha. He's going to walk with you for a while. He's going to succeed you. But man, he's going to build you back up. So we'll jump into that next week. Restoration of Elijah. I mean, restoration of Elijah and, and Elisha's new role. Talk about new assignments, all kinds of good things. So hopefully it's recorded. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.